line, I almost feel like we should just like go home. Right? What else can I tell you, right? Um, but I actually have a lot to tell you. We're coming to the end of our series on the book of Galatians. And last week was interesting. We had a pretty, pretty um, intense, if you will, or a pretty heavy congregational meeting. And people came up to me after and said, Wow, that was really amazing how you prepared that sermon to go, go to, to tee up the congregational meeting. And I said to people who said that, wait till next week. Um, <laughs> you see, uh, just a reminder that I, we basically here more or less preach through books of the Bible or chunks of the Bible. And so things that come up, this, this sermon was planned about a year ago, as was last week. So um, if you're following along, um, we're going to be looking at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 26 through 6. Verse 5, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the text in your order of worship, or you can also use your phone or anything else you'd like. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his work, his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray as we... um, I don't know how sensitive the topic is this morning, but I pray that you would make us all uh, receptive to it, that Holy Spirit, you would, you would make us all uh, willing uh, to love people as Paul actually encourages us to love this morning. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen and amen. So up to this point in the book of Galatians, if you remember, basically Paul went and planted this church in in Galatia, and he preached this thing called the gospel, and the gospel, if you remember, was basically that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died, and he rose from the dead, and what it means to become a Christian is that we trust in Jesus by faith alone. In other words, we, we trust that his work on the cross was enough to take away our sins and nothing else. Some other people came along and said, well, you know, that sounds good and everything, but if you really want to be sure, you should do these things. Namely, they said you should be circumcised and you should obey certain Jewish laws. And in much of the book of Galatians is Paul both reaffirming the gospel that he originally preached and sort of uh, taking down this, this new teaching that had come along. Now, as we get into to the end of the book, Paul is bringing a lot of application. And if you remember last week, the application we talked, it was the fruit of the Spirit. Right? He said there are works of the flesh on one hand, and there is fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us on the other hand. And if you remember, I told you there were several means of grace that God uses to, to, in our lives to help us, that, that, that we use, utilize along with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts um, to grow in Christ. And so remember those things were, were things like preaching and prayer and all of those kind of things. Well, today I want to take it to a different level and to a different place, and we're going to start this morning with a sort of a pretest for this morning's sermon, right? I know all you kids love that. So we're going to have a pretest this morning. And so I'm going to show you five things. I'll read them once they're up on the screen for people who are listening. And I want you to choose three of them. What we're going to talk about this morning, what are the marks of the church? 
In other words, during the Protestant Reformation, when, when, the, when the Protestants like Calvin and Luther and guys like that were breaking away from the Catholic Church, they, had to, they thought, well, if we're going to break away from them, what is it that would make us actually even be a church? What, what were the things, what would we need to be our own church? And they came up with three things. And so of these five, which three do you think that it is? So the first one is the, the faithful preaching of the gospel, number one the appropriate administration of the sacraments, number two. Uh, number three is prayer. Number four is fellowship or other people. And number five is church discipline. You don't need to answer out loud. I'm going to give you a minute. Bless you. So the three are, number one, faithful preaching of the gospel, they thought. The second one is right administration of the sacraments. And number three is church discipline. Is that surprising to you? That, that, when they, that, that, that when the reformers, maybe the smartest Christians who ever lived, decided what is it that determines what a real true church is, they said it's not just preaching and it's not just the sacraments. By the sacraments, I mean the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. But it's also... Discipline. Now, where did they get that from? Well, in many ways, they probably got it from the, in the Old Testament, there were three offices of, of, that we see back there, right? The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. What the, the prophet does is he brings God's word, and what the priest does is he mediates the presence of God, usually through rituals and things. And what the king does is the king brings, for lack of a better word, discipline. And remember, Jesus fulfilled all three offices. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our king. And so these are the three marks of the church. It's important because we don't tend to talk about church discipline very often, right? And it's always like this is the first, like, <laughs> Visitor Sunday, we're going to talk about church discipline or giving. Um, <laughs> church discipline today. It can be a hard subject. It can be an awkward subject. But what's interesting to me, at least, and it should be informative to us, is that the Apostle Paul, he sort of gives all this gospel stuff, and he's the culmination of which is that we would love one another, and we would fulfill the law by loving one another. And if, and if we were to say, Paul, what does that look like? And he would say, discipline. It just it pro probably wouldn't register with us. So we are going to talk about discipline this morning. And part of the reason um, I think we... we don't talk about church discipline very much. It's so on one hand, we tend to think it's like this big thing, right? It's, a, it's, a, it, 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 it's this big, and it, it can be scary. And I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I've told you before, I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid. And when I was young, one of the, one of the gifts, even before I was a Christian, that God gave me was that my stepfather, who would come home drunk oftentimes. He was a construction worker. He was an angry man. He would, he would often come home. But the thing is, one of the gifts that I had is he had a bad muffler on his truck. It was an early warning system. So I'd be outside playing, and I knew I did something wrong that day, which means I was going to get a pretty bad spanking when he got home. And I could hear that thing coming from a mile away. Bam, bam, bam. And I knew it was time to get out of Dodge. And I would take off and leave. And I thought, because if I got home later that night, maybe he would be calmed down from whatever had happened to him that day. In, in other words, put it this way. If I had thought, you know, I bet you when he gets home, he's going to lovingly discipline me for my own good 
so that I can grow as a person? No. We're afraid that discipline is all about punishment. And so one of the distinctions you have to make, at least when you're talking about discipline in the Bible, is that discipline in the Bible is not about punishment. Jesus took our punishment. That the point of discipline in the Bible is actually to restore us and to reconcile us both to God and to other people. And so when, once you have that in mind, discipline becomes something different. And you could see it actually as a loving thing, even though it is scary sometimes and even though it is awkward. And we'll talk about that. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Basically, we're going to look at the burden of discipline. We're going to look at the burden of other people or the burdens we bear on behalf of other people. And then we're going to look at our own burden, the, the burden that we have for, that we have to bear. So the first burden, the burden of discipline. Look at verse 1. So in verse six, chapter 6, he says, brothers, and, and that could be brothers and sisters. He says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So basically, Paul gives us two who's, a what, and a how here. And we'll talk about the process in, in a moment. But what, who are the who's in this passage, right? So the first thing you notice is that church discipline, it always starts on a one-to-one -one basis. It's always, it always starts at the individual level. So you say, well, I don't have anything to do with church discipline. And the answer is, if you are an individual, yes, you do. And notice who, who the two parties are as, in, at the beginning of this whole understanding and idea of discipline. The parties are, the, 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 first of all, he says, anyone caught in any transgression... So, so in, in other words, there's no one who's above the law. Anyone who's caught in any transgression. Now, that, the word caught there means either to, to like you catch them, they didn't know you were going to catch them, or, or somehow you've become aware of something. But it, it, and it, he doesn't even say what the transgression are or how big the transgression is. We have to decide, first of all, whether or not anytime we're going to, to exercise church discipline, we have to decide a couple of things. One, we have to decide, is this really a transgression? Or, and if it is a transgression, is it something worth actually confronting or something that I should just forgive, that I should just let go, that I, that I shouldn't worry about? And so, basically, um, on one hand, you have the person who has committed some transgression. We don't know how big it is. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's not. And on the other hand, the person who is supposed to actually restore them. He says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So the, so the first who is the transgressor. The second who is the spiritual person. Now, it's important to get here that he says, you who are spiritual, restore him, not you who are mature. I've been in church, you know, for the past 25 or 30 years, and I've heard debates all the, what is it? what does a mature Christian look like? What do, you know, how do we get there? And the answer is, number one, there is no such thing as a mature Christian. There are maturing Christians. You see, the problem is, I think, when we talk about, quote, mature Christians, what we really mean is people who know the Bible very well, or maybe people who, are, who have been elders or deacons, or they've been in church a long time. We said those are the people who should actually be doing the, the discipline, or who should be confronting of sin, and who should be restoring transgressors. And the answer, Paul would say, is no, those aren't the people. They might be, but the people who ought to be doing the restoring are you who are spiritual. 
Now, who, what does it mean to be a spiritual person in this, this context? It means you who are turning from works of the flesh and who are growing in the fruit of the Spirit, which, in other words, it should mean everyone except the person who's actually caught in the transgression. I mean, all of us struggle with some kinds of sins, and all of us need uh, for someone to intervene in our lives sometimes, but also many of us, at least if you're a Christian, have times when we ought to be the ones who are doing the intervening. So if you're growing at all in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, you are the person who should be doing the intervening in someone else's life. And so the, the, what should be being done here is he says, you who are spiritual should restore them. Now the good news, which I mentioned before about this whole issue of church discipline, when someone else is in some kind of sin that is harming them or harming others, the good news about the fact that we're supposed to do something about it in church is that it's all about restoration. That the goal of any kind of church discipline, whether it's, it's small or whether it's on a big church-wide basis, is that it's, it's restoration. It's to restore the sinner back to God and to reconcile. So that's the good news. The bad news, the hard thing about this passage, is that the word that Paul uses for restore is the same word that's used for the setting of broken bones. In, in other words, restoration is almost always and inevitably painful for someone who has been caught in, in some kind of sin, especially some kind of habitual sin or some kind of scandalous sin. Restoration is never easy. In fact, it's painful. I think that's why Paul chooses this word, and I think that informs the how. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Because if you've ever been, I've had several bones set in my life. If you've ever had your, your, a, bone, a broken bone set, no matter how gentle the doctor is, it still hurts. And it hurts after the fact as well. And I think that's the reason oftentimes we avoid restoration. In other words, we not, not only do we not talk to the person who has committed some kind of sin, we don't approach them. It's because I think either intuitively or by our experience, we know that restoration is going to be painful and it's going to be awkward and it's going to be hard. And so since it's going to be painful, it's going to be awkward, and it's going to be hard, we simply avoid it. And so if we don't avoid it, which is one of the mistakes, there's generally three mistakes that we make when it comes to church discipline. So on one hand, if we, we, some, some transgressor has been you know, caught, something has happened that we basically either we do church discipline too fast, in other words, someone's been caught saying a scandalous sin, and we say, you know what, just say you're sorry and let's get this over with. Just say, just say that you're repentant and we'll, we'll tell everyone everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Why can't we just do that? I hear that all the time. So-and-so's repentant or so-and-so said they're, they're, everything's fine. Let's just move on. Well, that's, that's too fast. If, if there is no pain with it, the question is, have you really dealt with the sin in your heart or the sin in your, your life that's actually caused this in the first place? So on one hand, it can be too, too fast. On the other hand, it can be too harsh. Right, the, the, I was reading a first, Second Corinthians this morning. Remember, Paul tells there's a, a man who has committed some gross sin there, and he tells the church, you need to restore him because if, if you don't, it's just going to become overburdensome to him. In other words, if you don't show, give some hope and you don't give some sort of uh, sense of progress, the person can just become overwhelmed. So on one hand, the, uh, church discipline can be too fast, it can be too harsh, and then, of course, we just avoid it. We just think either, you know, maybe someone else will do it. Or maybe I, if I don't say anything, then, you know, it'll just go away. Now, if you think about it, remember we talked about last week, Paul says, I warn you about these things. 
to not do anything when you see someone who's beginning ready to walk in front of a bus or is ready to harm themselves or harm others, is that the most loving thing you can do? It's, it's not. In fact, it's, it's relatively selfish. In fact, it's pretty, very selfish. And so what do we do then? Is, is there some process? I think this, this issue is so important and it's so big that even Jesus himself addressed it. There's almost a process here that the Apostle Paul assumes, and I, I imagine it's the process from Matthew 18. If you want to turn there, you can. If you, don't, if you don't want to, you don't have to either. I'll read it to you. Jesus says in Matthew 18, and by the way, the, he, Jesus first tells the parable of the lost sheep, finding this lost sheep, and then he moves from there to the issue of recovering your lost brother. And so he says, verse 15, he says, if your brother or sister sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone and if he listens to you you have gained your brother but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector so what is the process if we feel like Someone has either sinned against us or maybe um, you see someone treating their spouse a certain way and you feel like, wow, that really needs to be addressed. Is there a process? And the answer is absolutely yes. The process Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, step number one, if you're a note taker, is verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Jesus says, go to your brother alone and just and, and tell him. And see, this is where we have the issue. Of, is, we have to ask ourselves, is this sin big enough for me to actually go and talk to the person about? And is it big enough to, to potentially cause a breach in the relationship or difficulty? Because if it, we always have the choice of either confronting a sin or forgiving a sin. Right, so, so let, let's say, for example, um, I knock on Samuel's door, and I say, Samuel, can we talk about something? And he says, what? And I said, you know, how, what a shrinking daisy I am. And at, when, when you say things in public, like when you refer to my special gifts as neuroses, <laughs> it really hurts my feelings. And if Samuel says, Tommy, I had no idea. I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? I've won my brother. It's as simple as that. I don't need to tell anyone else in the whole world about that. And I should rejoice because I actually told him something that hurt my feelings, which it really doesn't. And and he immediately said, I'm sorry. And he repented, and that's it. I have just done church discipline successfully. That, that's one option. Or the other option is to just laugh when he says that because, you know what, it's pretty funny. Do we have a sense of humor? So the first step is go to your brother alone. What if you go to your brother and he, and he says, I'm not going to repent of this. I don't believe you, you know, or he sort of hides or something. Well, then the next step, step number two, he says, if he does not listen to you, take two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Jesus is invoking Deuteronomy here, right? The, the, 
we don't, we don't go around and charge people unless there, there are witnesses to this. I mean, it's where we get our legal system from, all of these things. But you take two people, and at that point, if the person says, you know what, you two here together, right? So I take one of the elders with me because I'm afraid of Samuel. And so I go in, he, and, he, and the, before he told me to get out of his office, and I go, and he says, you know what, since there's two of you here, I could actually see now how, how that hurts your feelings. And if he says that, if he repents, if he says, I'm sorry, guess what? I've won my brother. Now, he says, if that doesn't work, what do you do? He says in verse 17, step number three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, in our system of government, by telling it to the church, the next step would be it would go to the elders because they represent the church, and the elders would then begin to investigate and start this whole process, and ultimately that would culminate in either a restoration plan and some kind of way to move forward, because if you think about it, by the time it got to the elders, it would be a pretty big issue, I imagine, or it would result in the person saying, I'm not going to have any of this, and unfortunately that would mean being excommunicated, being being put out of the body until the repentance has happened. Now, what's interesting is, at least I've always wondered about this passage, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, ask yourself, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? In other words, Jesus isn't advocating if someone won't repent of their sins, you just shun them and shame them. You still love them. You still show them grace. But there also needs to be seen that there are consequences for refusing to turn from our sin. And the goal at each step is actually the restoration of the sinner. And I think the reason we avoid this process is because we really don't believe or we don't understand or we don't keep it in mind that this process is the very thing that Jesus did for us and still does for us. If you're a Christian here, that means at some point in your life you have been confronted with the fact that you are a sinner. And it was, you, were, you were confronted by the Holy Spirit probably through a person. Because God almost inevitably works through the people. And you were confronted and you repented of that. And you were, you were restored and reconciled to God through the confrontation of the, the Holy Spirit based on the person and work of Jesus. And so when we look at other people in the same boat, we are simply called to live out the gospel and do the same for them. If you want to know how important discipline is in the context of the whole Bible, let me read to you from the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The author of the book of Hebrews says, and have you, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he believes, whom, whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
In, in other words, discipline is just not this sort of random thing that comes out of nowhere in the Bible. In fact, all of us are being disciplined, and the, remember the root word of that is disciple all the time by God himself. Either through life situations or through relationships, we're constantly being conformed into the image of Jesus. And when it comes to this issue of, of church discipline, starting with the, at the individual level, we are simply called to participate in that. And we're called to participate in that as a bearing of someone else's burden. I mean, it's interesting that Paul says, let's talk about what it means to love each other and bear each other's burdens. And then he immediately jumps into this issue of restoring someone who has fallen into sin. We're called to restore each other's burdens. That's where Paul goes next. Notice what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So what is Paul getting at here? He goes from the very specific when he talks about restoring a sinner to the, to the general uh, bearing of burdens. And the word here, it's important to get this word because the word at the end of this passage, burden, is also different. It's, in Greek, it's the word boros, and it means a burden that is impossible to carry alone. So when Paul says, uh, bear one another's burdens, that's what he's talking about. To bear a burden that's impossible to carry by yourself. And he's not talking about the burden of guilt and sin. Right? Jesus has borne the burden of our guilt. He's borne the burden of our sin. He's borne the burden of broken covenant. All these things. I think Paul is just being very practical here. There are burdens that we have from time to time that are impossible to carry ourselves, whether they are burdens that are emotional or spiritual or financial. Whatever they are, Paul says, the way that we fulfill the law of love is by bearing one another's burdens. It's a very tangible thing. And then what's interesting is he says, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, what is he getting at there? I think what he's, what he's implying there is here's what keeps us from, from being burden bearers. And what keeps us from being burden bearers is conceit or pride even. Notice what he said in verse 26. I want to go backward to that. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. In other words, two dangers that we have in the, in the gospel and in our own lives is that we either think too highly of ourselves, provoking, or too lowly of ourselves, envy, envying other people. And the, if the barrier to bearing each other's burdens is pride, the question here is which person is the prideful person? Is it the person who's in a position to help who just thinks that they're just above it, right? I'm not going to get my hands dirty. I'm not going to, to, to bother with these poor people that need this help. I'm not going to bear burdens because I'm just above it. I'll write a check. I'll do something, but I'm not going to get involved. Honestly, I don't think that's what Paul's, the, the person Paul's calling out here. Because that person thinks too highly of themselves. The other person that can be prideful is the person who thinks too lowly of themselves, the one who is, who is envious. In my experience as a pastor, I've seen much more resistance and much more pride when it comes to people receiving help than it comes to people actually being generous and giving help. In, in other words, our church is historically, at least I've been here about 15 years, is one of the most generous churches I've ever seen in my life. I mean, financially and with resources and just people being on site, it's just amazing to me from time to time. Where we tend to become prideful is when we need the help. And it's amazing because you ask someone, call your friend who you know has had some 
big thing happened to them, either emotionally or spiritually or financially. And he called and said, is there anything I can do? What does everyone say? No, we're okay. We're doing fine. You know, that's the reason, and some people don't like it, but you'll see me someday. I never call before I visit someone. Never. Because if I call people's house and I say, hey, Joe, I heard you broke your hip. Can I visit today? Oh, I'm fine. Don't need anything. When I just show up, what do you know? They're happy to see me usually. Because all of us, I think, in our pride are too worried about what people are going to think of us. And so I've got this huge financial burden, and someone says, is there anything I can do for you? And we say, I'm good. I'm fine. I'll figure it out myself. That is just as bad a problem as the person who thinks he or she is above it all. It's one thing if you're not generous and receive, to be able to receive, to give help. It's another thing if you're not able or willing to receive help because of your pride. And so the question is, are you willing to put down your pride and receive help? Do you have a financial burden? Do you, are you about to, to, to lose your house, something? Have you talked to the deacons? Have you talked to anyone at church? Have you talked to anyone about, about what's going on at your house? Maybe you're being abused. Maybe you're being harmed at home. Have you talked to anyone about it? Have you, have you reached out to let someone else bear that burden? And notice Paul doesn't say here, you know, if you have a problem in the church, just go get the pastor. I don't mind that, but that's not what Paul's teaching. Paul's saying if there's a, if there's a need to be met, if, there, if there's something that needs to be done, you who are spiritual are the ones who should do it. So he says on one hand, we should bear each other's burdens. On the other hand, he, he almost sounds contradictory at the end, and I'll close with this real quickly. He says in verse 4, so he's just said in verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, bear one another's burdens. In verse 4 he says, but, right, whenever you say but, get rid of everything that came before. He says, but, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now is Paul contradicting himself there? And the answer, of course, is no. Right When he says before, he says, bear one another's burdens. That word in Greek means something that you can't carry by yourself. And this word at the end here where he says, bear your own load is the word fortune, P-H-O-R-T-I-O-N, transliterated. And that means something like a butt pack or a backpack or what you would take to school in the morning. In other words, it's something that you clearly can carry by yourself. It's your thing. And no one else can carry it. In other words, what Paul is getting at here is I think this is where he's talking maybe to prideful people too. That don't, we spend our times and we look out and we say, oh boy, that's Samuel. He said this about this. I need to confront him. Are we actually considering the issues in our own life? Are we considering the fact that, you know, Tommy, you got a pretty smart mouth too. And Samuel, <laughs> back to that illustration, one of us might catch it more than the other. I have to deal with my own load. I have to deal with my own gifts also before I start dealing with everyone else. Let me finish by reading you this one. I think the a passage that illustrates this better than anything else, what I'm trying to say here, is at the end of the Gospel of John. Remember the end of the Gospel of John? Peter's gone fishing, and Jesus has showed up on the beach, and he says, come and have breakfast, and Peter jumps in the water, and Jesus and Peter, after this, take a little walk on the beach. And starting at verse 15 of chapter 21, he says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, (laughs) you know that I love you. And he said, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Then they're walking. Verse 20, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, um, following them and the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter's trying to sort of either blame shift or he's trying to get some of the heat off of himself. Jesus has asked him three times, which is the way you emphasize something in the ancient Near East, are you going to feed my sheep? Yes, 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 yes. Do you love me? Yes, 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 yes. What about him? This guy, Mr. Like teacher's pet, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He'll probably write that in a gospel someday. (laughs) What about him? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Don't worry about him. Worry about yourself. Don't worry about how well he's doing following me. You, Peter, you follow me. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray as we consider this issue of discipline um, that it would be uh, a burden for us. It would be a burden of grace, and it would be a burden um, that is exercised in grace on one hand. On the other hand, it would be a thing that that sins are often forgiven because we realize that we too need that same grace. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.